I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I'm so excited to have Maury Taharipour here with me today. Maury is a globally recognized executive with over two decades of negotiation, diversity, inclusion, and sports industry experience. She teaches negotiation and dispute resolution at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where she serves on the faculty of the Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department and is a seven-time recipient of, uh, for Excellence in Teaching Awards. Maury works with a diverse client base that includes major sports leagues, Fortune 100 companies, universities, foundations, and professional associations. Ms. Tahiri Poor earned her BA from Bernard College of Columbia University, her MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and was awarded a diversity and inclusion certificate from Cornell University. Her first book, Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly, was published in March of 2020. Maury, thank you so much for joining. I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So, so much there in that, in that this is the abridged bio for anyone wondering, like there's so much more in there that she's done. I am, I'm fascinated um, at how you have bridged sports and negotiation and social change as a woman in this world. So I would love to just kind of hear how you got into that work and please like take us on a long journey if you'd like to. No need to be uh, super high level here. I'd love to just hear your your path and your journey and how you got to where you are. So I wish I could tell you it was an intentional journey. It was not. Um, the only thing probably intentional about it was the very first part of my career um, where so shortly after college um, I went into the public health space. I had thought, well, my parents thought that I should be a doctor and I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor, but um, <laughs> it was a big realization. I just wish I had done it while I was still in college, but that's a whole other story for another time. Um, and, but I was very drawn to sort of social impact and um, had worked uh, interning for St. Luke's Hospital, Roosevelt Hospital in, in New York. Um, specifically in the sickle cell unit, where we saw a lot of hard to reach populations, you know, people with, with severe pain um, and, you know, people who didn't necessarily have a lot of information on the outside about their disease, but then part of our work was really to educate them, provide the services with empathy, with care, because again, there's so much pain associated with with a disease. And right about that time, we also started to see patients who had been potentially exposed to HIV because they got transfusions for sickle cell. And um, so that was a really, it was jarring for me um, at such a young age to see these patients who are already struggling. Um, and then now you're sending them a letter basically that says, hey, we must see you because you may have been exposed. Um, and, and I was also planning to leave New York around that time. My whole family had moved to California. So when I moved to California, I thought, 
you know, the, the HIV AIDS work um, was something I just wanted to learn more about. Um, this is quite sort of still early on and, and um, this is like early 90s. And there was a lot we didn't know. Um, and so it just intrigued me. And, and I realized that what I didn't want from medicine was the sort of the micro like doctor patient relationship necessarily. I wanted the macro, you know, sort of uh, care given to, uh, you know, the healthcare system in this country, I, I don't really need to expound on, but um, it, it's, it was really hard to see that if you were a certain race, if you were of a certain socioeconomic level, that you potentially did not get the same level of care and services that somebody who could afford the better hospitals, the better doctors, you know, and, and that very quickly, that naivete I had went out the door. And um, I, I first started doing really hard work, which was actually doing HIV counseling, which was the pre and post test. So the person who guides them in getting the test and then gives the results. And given the really high-risk populations that we were working with, we were in East and West Oakland at the time, Tenderloin District in California, high, high-risk populations, you know, I was giving out a significant number of HIV positive results on a regular basis. And it was heart-wrenching. It was illuminating. Um, brought me a whole lot of clarity around sort of the, the, the real, again, the difference between um, socioeconomic levels and, and racial issues that are so ingrained in, in our healthcare system. Um, and at the same time, I also felt like there's got to be a better way, right? There's got to be something that, that can make this better. And I ended up transitioning into the public health department um, and then eventually heading up all the testing for the county, uh, for Alameda County. And so that education just kept getting sort of broader and broader. Like this wasn't just a town that this was happening to, but this is sort of the population at large. The good news is that we got, and you gave, you gave me the permission to give you the long version. This is really the only way this makes sense. But um, we had just gotten sort of the first breakthrough around HIV drugs. So um, there, was a, there was a finding and, and very optimistic that women who were pregnant could reduce the rate of transmission of HIV to their child. Um, by about two thirds, it was huge. Um, and this drug called AZT, and um, you know the the notion of having such a breakthrough and and sort of optimistic finding about you after years of not having anything is really exciting. But now the confounding effect, though, is that again, if you're of a certain race, if you are of a certain socioeconomic status, you may not even be offered an HIV test. So, you know, you won't have the benefits of having access to such a promising drug. I went into that much detail because the, I created a program. It was really great. It, it reached sort of the, the high um, risk populations, but it also became sort of California law where they adopted it for all pregnant women. You must give them information about HIV AIDS and then provide the opportunity for them to take the test, which, which was great. Um, that then pushed me into, uh, pushed is, is a strong word, I guess. Uh, um, that made me think there's more to this than just going to graduate school. I'd applied to business school and I got an opportunity to, to actually start a company um, with funding from the state of California to, to continue the work that I had been doing. Um, so I pushed business school off um, and this became sort of the, the, the really the heart and soul of our company, which was 
creating educational materials to for for hard to reach communities for high risk populations um, to basically provide education around communicable diseases and leading with sort of HIV AIDS. And that really is how I went into sort of the DNI work. It wasn't your traditional HR beginning, you know, that, that, that people have, that usually the people that are going into DNI, they have some kind of a human resources background. I did not, that's not how I started. Mine was really from the communications and marketing side um, and making sort of culturally appropriate, culturally sensitive materials. Did it for um, a variety of states around the country and then actually um, some, some countries in Africa, in fact. And um, once I sort of went through this process, I did get a, a, a opportunity to go to the American Red Cross. Um, I was a business owner, I was an entrepreneur. I was like, I don't necessarily wanna go and do um, any work besides running my company right now. Um, and it was for a, uh, basically the head of corporate diversity of the American Red Cross nationally. And I was like, no, I'm good, right? There's, I'm in California running my business. And then Hurricane Katrina came. And um, I still get goosebumps. I uh, just remember the devastating videos and pictures of people. And, you know, somehow it didn't feel like it was right to write a check. Like there was, like, what are we doing? What's there to be done? And I sort of called the people back who had recruited me for the position. I said, you know, I said, no, I'm, I'm kind of interested now. Um, and it was because I was drawn to it. I was drawn to the challenge. I was drawn to, I wanted to do something that maybe helped and contributed in a different way. That was a complete shift out of my career at that point. Um, went to the Red Cross, headed up um, diversity um, for the organization. And it was really around sort of a lot of things that had gone wrong around Hurricane Katrina it wasn't necessarily the response itself. It was the lack of um, cultural sensitivity around the response, right? The, the types of volunteers that we had. So the best of intentions, if you can't reach a population um, in a way that's appropriate, culturally appropriate um, and inclusive, then you know it's, it's all for nothing in some ways. And so it was an amazing, amazing opportunity. It was based under sort of the HR kind of umbrella um, but I did some of your traditional DNI work. We did a lot of um, trainings, really sort of re-educating a lot of our volunteers, working with corporate partners, and looking sort of outwardly at, at our systems, and then looking inward. And that was definitely the harder part of the job, for sure. Um, but it was a great, great opportunity for me to learn more about sort of the DNI space. Um, went from there to teaching at Wharton. Now I can speed this up. Teaching at Wharton, um, unintentionally, I was asked to teach negotiations um, shortly after I graduated. And the entire time as I was at Wharton, you know, a, the common thread through all of my career was that I had a, a huge interest in sports. Couldn't figure out what to do. In my own company, we had wrapped around like social marketing messages around celebrities and athletes. Um, to use their power of celebrity to increase awareness and education. But I kind of didn't want to be on the fringes of, I wanted to be in sports. Um, again, couldn't figure out how I was able to do that. Right about the time I started teaching, I also helped co-found the Wharton Sports Business Initiative, which was really a think tank around the sports business. Um, and that kind of launched then the rest of my career where I am now. So it started in a way that 
that I never really could have imagined where I'd be today. Um, negotiations became shortly sort of, I should say teaching became um, a, a true calling um, and negotiation specifically because of the fact that it's, at least the way I teach it, it's very empowering and it allows people to bring their own voice, different voices, hearing one another, listening to one another, not, not stepping in with your biases and your predisposed notions of people. And it became about human beings and connections. And so now that thread sort of goes back into everything else I was doing. I wanted to do something with impact and teaching became my way of doing it. So um, it's, it's a very involved story. Um, there's no elevator pitch, uh, but, but that's kind of how it all sort of came together. That's amazing. I love, I mean, I love that you started out doing HIV work because that's, I have, that's a passion of mine as well when I was in my medical career and, um, and, and without dating you too much, like you were there, like at the beginning, you know, like, like when things were major, uh, and, and there were not like, there were nowhere near the advances that there are now. So that, and, and that, that ended up bringing you to where you are. Um, it's such a great story. I'm really glad that you, that we were able to do the, the long version. So how do you, how do you bring you sports and social change now? Like how, what does that look like for you now and the work that you're doing? Yeah, the, the sports industry is a sort of a complex um, world in and of itself, right? There's the business side, there's the work with athletes. There are people that love sports just because they love sports. Um, I frankly, and this, this started with my work with, with celebrities and, and athletes and namely Magic Johnson at the time um, when I had my company and him having been diagnosed with HIV AIDS and, 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 and um, living with it in a way that was that you know basically if you looked at if you looked at magic johnson by the time i started sort of really working in it you would think such a healthy guy what does this mean for the average person and when he was able to sort of lean into the power of a celebrity and educate people and tell them that you know he did he was lucky to have access to the best of care but for people to be use safe sex to be educated to take all the precautions and you know, we sort of partnered him up with a, an organization, um, it's Healthcare Foundation. Um, they were based out of LA and they were gonna open clinics up under sort of jointly. And I just remember um, when we opened the doors of the clinic in Oakland and there were literally people who were, it was like the line was going out and around the corner. It was really rare to see because people still, there was, it was such a taboo subject and people didn't necessarily want to reveal their diagnosis. So they'd go to other cities to seek care, right? Out of their communities. But here were all these people as if none of that, you know, they were so excited to actually see him that all those fears and, and the things that sort of held them back drew them into seek care. That was so powerful. And I never forgot that. And I thought that's the part of sports I really love that it could be leveraged and used as a platform um, to create social change and create impact that athletes may be our most powerful voices that when harnessed um, in their, in the things that they want to do and the impact that they want to have on communities, you know, the possibilities are limitless. And, and I see them as leaders and I see them as as people who can create social change in a way that maybe few other things can do. And that's how I really sort of 
found kind of my niche in sports. Um, I've done a lot of athlete education work um, and really sort of to engage them while they, they're actually still active and then, then helping them transition out of the sport and educating them. And I find them even more remar remarkable today than when I first started. And, and really it's been such a privilege because they are curious. They're, I, I shouldn't say they because that's a huge generalization, but the, the athletes that I've worked with, and I've worked with many, are intellectually curious, are committed to their communities. They never really forget where they come from and, and who they want to support and help. And, and when they are educated, when they do receive the, the information about the causes that they're really um, passionate about, then they lean all the way in. And I, I've, I, like I said, I'm still sort of taken back by that. And it's been, it's been a huge, huge inspiration and privilege um, because I've been able to do all this work and again, find sort of the links that le lets me do it. Hi there, Dr. Jill Weiner here. This podcast is sponsored by Conscious Anti-Racism, my online course with Dr. Maisha Claiborne, created for listeners like you who are eager to learn practical tools that will help you find your place in the fight against systemic racism. We even have a CME accredited version for healthcare professionals. Visit ConsciousAntiRacism.com for more information. Now back to the episode. Um, how do, are you, are you like solo lady about, like, do you work for, a, I know you're the te a teacher at Wharton, but like a professor at Wharton, but are you an independent? Entity? I am. Okay. All right. All the one woman show. I love it. I love it. A bunch of different um, clients. My, um, most sort of long-term and the part of my life that takes up the most space is the negotiations work I do, namely for Goldman Sachs Foundation. Um, I teach in their 10,000 small business program um, and, and really sort of um, communicating sort of negotiation skills and teaching negotiation skills to their small business owners and entrepreneurs under their foundation arm. Um, and again, no, not really related to sports whatsoever, but it is the bigger part of my life. And, um, I just love what I do. I mean, there's really, I'm, I'm so grateful that there's so many opportunities, meet so many different people um, from entrepreneurs to my undergrads of Wharton to the athletes I've worked with to, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary, but I'm a one woman show. I love I'm it. People that work with me, but I'm really the person who's out there doing the work. And you're not like high, you're not like an employee. You're, you have your own consulting. Only, only for the University of Pennsylvania at Wharton where yeah. I teach. Yeah. So I want to, I'm curious to ask you about Colin Kaepernick because I had this experience several years ago before I had really found my voice in the anti-racism space. And I was at Thanksgiving um, and I shared with a, a close family friend, we were watching football as I'm, I'm like not a sports person, but I can like sit down and watch an entire football game and enjoy it. But then I just end up getting sad when the team that I don't even care about doesn't win. <laughs> like I just get too emotionally involved and it's not worth it to me. But I do appreciate uh, what, what, sporting, uh, what sports do mean to people. But, and I just remember saying something like, I think it's awesome what he's doing. Like I really, and he was like, and this is a, from a you know, liberal, well-intending family, total scorn, total like pff, athletes just need to stay in their place and entertain us. And I remember being horrified and I remember like not knowing enough about what to say. And I think like, it sticks out for me as I'm sure we all have moments in our lives where we were like, I, I 
pretty actively didn't do the right thing, even though it was, it was, it was silent. So that was not doing the right thing. And it stuck with me. And I feel like what he has had to go through and then like kind of come out on the other end of, and I don't know exactly how well he's doing now, but I know that he's, people get it now, what he was doing, I feel like, and, and finally see it. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, on that interaction. Cause I'm sure that has played out in front of your eyes in the, in the sport community. What are your thoughts on, on, um, yeah. I got you. Uh, so it's interesting because he was very quiet about it when he started, right? That the, the, there wasn't really a whole lot of attention when he, when he started sort of his, his protest um, and media just saw it. And literally that was the end of the, the, his being able to stay quiet about it, which I don't think he necessarily wanted to do, but it was his own way of, of um, you know, raising awareness about an issue that was really important to him. Um, I think that he had tremendous courage. I think the world was not ready. Mm-hmm. Our country wasn't ready. Um, I would argue that had it been for the pandemic, our country may not have still been ready um, to have those conversations. We don't like looking at the things that, that have been so unjustifiable and, and really such a horrific part of our history here. And this one athlete, which is why I said I, I love sports, was able to really start the conversation for good or for bad or whether it was accepted or it wasn't accepted, it started the conversation. And he learned through the process, he made some mistakes um, and admitted that he grew as the process sort of went on to look at things that didn't, you know, sort of whether it was the kneeling or standing, whether it was, you know, all of that. And, and you know, it was interesting to see him sort of not give up on the, the cause itself, but really sort of grow with it and grow with, with the circumstance that he was now put in, which was now the, the cameras were all over him. He was doing media interviews. I'm not sure that the, he ever necessarily wanted that. He wanted to play football. Um, and um, what it did was also start the conversations in the locker rooms as well. So I think that it really um, was sort of the, 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 a moment in time where because of the, the scrutiny and the media attention, a lot of the athletes that were around him, again, the conversation started. And then were they all pleasant? No, because everybody has different opinions and different backgrounds. And, and you don't expect people to feel exactly the way you feel or have had the same ex- opportunities and experiences as you. So I thought that was really powerful. I don't want to forget that it was really a lot of the WNBA players. I'm sort of the, the heart of a lot of this movement actually did start with the women. Um, but, you know, athletes are not monolithic. They are human beings. They've had experiences. They've, they grow in front of our eyes. They, um, they're allowed mistakes. They're allowed to not know exactly how to do things because they don't have media training necessarily, or, or some do, some don't, right? But they're allowed to be passionate and they're allowed to feel fueled by their passion. And, um, you know, they're smart, they're committed, all these things. So what bothered me the most, oh, there are so many things that bother me, but I think the thing that bothered me the most is that we, somehow think in some ways they're not human and, mm-hmm. and they 
or they're just good for one thing, which is our entertainment. So the whole shut up and dribble comments with LeBron and, and all those things really came out because it was as though, um, you know what, all you were allowed to do is just go to work and do what you do to entertain us every single day. And if you bring any of that other stuff that I don't want to hear about, maybe because you know it's, it's I don't want to see the truth or maybe because sports is, a way for me to get away from everything. And here you're reminding me of those things again. You know, who are we to say? And, and, and I thought he was just so courageous for continuing to say, even when media, even when people wanted to mix up the message and, um, and not put the focus exactly where he wanted on, which was not, he was not against the flag. <laughs> that wasn't, that wasn't it. It was, he was against police brutality. And, and the fact that people rewrote the narrative is really, I think, what was the worst part of it all because we lost a lot of time. And then it took George Floyd's murder for us to be like, oh, 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 there was a thing, right? Oh, there is a thing. Like, oh, there's black people are getting killed for no reason. Oh my God. And it's because people were at home and it was the pandemic and now, you cannot escape the truth. Now, for whether you want it or not, it's right there staring at you and say, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm not going away. And, and this is a problem. Um, so again, very long answer. I think that, that he certainly was a catalyst, um, whether he plays again or not, whether I'm, I'm frankly don't even really want to engage in that conversation anymore because I feel like Colin Kaepernick, he was an extraordinary football player. He, his, his legacy will be what he has done since. Yeah. And that's, to me, priceless. I mean, the thing he will be remembered for is, is being a catalyst for social change and doing so relentlessly. And um, I think that's, that speaks to the power of him, not just as an athlete, but as a man. Thank you for that insight. Um, and it's, it's I'm, as a person who does not know a lot about sports, I don't actually know about that much of um, the fallout, except the the nasty, you know, the, the nasty, the nasty things that we don't even need to go into because you've already covered them um, so well. So, um, how do how do athletes? So, do our athletes like I want to speak up, I want to like find my voice, and they call you, or how do you get like pulled into that? It's so interesting. I actually haven't done um, a, a lot of this social justice work. Like a lot of the work that I've done has been just really sort of educate, like business education and things oh, like okay. that. And I've done some philanthropy work early on, but as of late, not really. Um, so I've been almost on the sidelines watching all this happen myself, but um, the leagues have been very committed to it in their own way. And, and you know, even a sport I never thought would move on this issue and make progress was NASCAR and they became really engaged. And, and um, so everything I'm talking about is almost like, I don't, you know, I've, I've watched um, with pride um, from the sidelines and happy to see that the movement has not gone away. Happy to see that athletes today feel increasingly empowered. Um, 
and you know, it's not just social justice issues. It's like they are, I'm hoping the, the notion of you are more than just an athlete, that, that, that they look at business investments that way, that they hopefully can, can buy teams and be team owners so they can change the culture of their, of their organizations. And you know, there's a lot of sort of the, if you want to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, there's a lot of work to be done in sport. Um, but, but I'm hopeful. I see the NFL and all the work that, um, and that I've been engaged in was really sort of, uh, the women who are, we now see in non-traditional roles, um, in, in coaching and scouting and officiating. I mean, talk about being proud. Like it's, it's incredible, but we need more, um, sort of, uh, representation from a race perspective and we need, there's so much work, um, but in some ways, the social change issue, uh, and, and again, going back to WNBA and then Colin Kaepernick and all that, I think gave power to the voice. And that then will hopefully evolve um, rather than sort of disappear um, because they are committed and, and their, their voice speaks very loudly. Um, so it's, it's great to see that. It's beautiful to see, yeah. I'd love to talk about your book because before we got on uh, our call, you were you were talking about how your book, how your book and negotiation and social change all kind of come together. And as a person who's not in business, um, I wouldn't be like initially like, oh yeah, negotiations and social justice work, absolutely. So I would love to hear from you and please like plug your book all over the place here. I want to hear all about it and tell our listeners about it. Um, what it what it is that you're that you're bringing to the space and, and how it all ties in. I'm so fascinated. Yeah, so you are not the only one confused. Most people are like, huh? <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the book, and it's called Bring Yourself, How to Harness the Power of Connection to Negotiate Fearlessly. Um, I wrote because I wanted a different story to be told about negotiations, that, um, that negotiations don't have to be combative or aggressive, that, that um, through empathy and understanding and listening and presence and mindfulness, which I know you know more than enough about, that that's how we build um, really sort of enduring um, and important human connections. And that in fact is at the heart of great negotiations, right? It's if you stop thinking about it as a short-term mm -hmm. transaction, but rather as sort of the soundtrack of our lives, we're negotiating all the time, then the power of connection is so much more important. And um, it, you know, if you are listening more, if you're present, if you're mindful, not only do you see someone, but you are able to make better decisions and you're maybe able to get past your biases and, and the, the things that have held you back from making um, better decisions because you've gone in with your mind already made up. So this is all about learning and understanding and having conversations and doing collaborative problem solving. Um, and to me, that's, that's the elegance of negotiations. That's the power of negotiations. I wanted the book to empower people. I wanted a lot of people, a lot of my students are not combative, are not comfortable being aggressive, are not, you know, if given the choice, they value relationships and they, they want to lead with their values. Um, and even for those who are more aggressive, that doesn't mean that they have to treat people badly. It's just that they can be really focused on their outcomes and their goals. But I wanted to sort of infuse humanity into this process and, and empower everybody to feel like they could be great negotiators. That being said, 
a very big part of my book um, is about, first of all, connecting with yourself um, and showing up authentically and knowing your own value, which really is sort of the essence of when we talk about sort of DNI is to know your value is the then having the right to show up and having the ability to express your voice and the opportunity to be included and have a seat at the table um, and and to do so um, with confidence. So there's there's that element of it. And then you know the power of storytelling. So telling your story. So that's how you can educate people who don't know somebody who looks like you, who don't know your background, who don't know. So that's you know the the great negotiator is in fact the storyteller, the person who um, doesn't hold back from, from, from expressing their values and, and standing in them and really being true to their convictions. And then the book goes on, the second half of the book really is focused on and how you do this well with your counterparts or even yourself. And it's all about sort of mindfulness and presence and empathy um, and noticing people and seeing people and connecting with people. Um, and that's really the, I think, the, the, the part of inclusion that if we focus on really from a company level to, to a person to person level, then what it's really saying is don't be afraid that you're not agreeing. Don't be afraid that your voice is different than somebody else's. But there's a way to navigate these differences so that you're both coming out of this maybe not with exactly what you wanted, but maybe something better, maybe something different. Maybe this notion of, of having the ability to speak up, even if it creates conflict in the room and there's people that disagree, then those conflicts and those disagreements are the things that actually move people forward. It's like the conversation we were having before, things are not difficult, things are not always um, easy. You know, it's the conversations are not always comfortable, but um, comfort and growth uh, don't necessarily coexist. And so that was really, that's really the heart of, and it's really, again, that goes back to the way I teach negotiations. Um, I just think we all need a little bit more humanity and compassion. Um, I think we need to hear each other before making our minds up about people. Um, and I just didn't see us going in that direction, um, certainly over the past few years. And it was my way of saying, you know, there's another way, by the way, right? There's another way to look at negotiations. And I just wanted to reframe it for people. But that's how I see the two things really connecting. That's beautiful. And your book came out at, at COVID, day zero, basically, March 2020. Possible time. Like Amazon was not delivering. So that's, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so how, okay. Can I ask you like a, like a, how would you handle a situation? Sure. I mean, just, okay. So your, you know, family member, friend, someone is on that side of the political spectrum and you're on this side of the political spectrum and you're like at dinner or you're trying to have a conversation or you're at a, a friend's wedding or something or on Facebook. How, how, what are your, what's your advice for, without giving away all your secrets because everyone needs to go buy your book, but how do we, how do you use empathy in that situation when there's so much like staunch, I'm staying in my spot and not moving? And how do you maybe recognize when someone's not going to move and then you move on? 
So um, the very last chapter of my book seems like a total departure from the rest of the book, but it's, it's in fact connected, but it's called How Negotiations Can Save Democracy. Ooh. And um, the reason for my editors, for myself, but why this was so important, I thought, to be a part of this book was because of the, the inability for us to have these sort of political conversations, um, particularly over you know, the last five, six, seven years. And it got worse and worse and worse. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, and I thought that that it was important to talk about, you know, we can't break up all of our relationships. We can't ignore everybody who doesn't agree with us. We can't, um, you know, that, that can't be the way, right? At least not the first way. And again, hard things are just hard, right? So, um, when you have family members, when you have friends, which I've had, who wholeheartedly disagree with you, let's say, as it relates to politics, I think there are several things that you do that you would do with any negotiations, right? You understand your own boundaries. You understand your own values and how to communicate those things. You have to know that because your opinion is different, this is the hard part, we are not always right about everything, right? Nobody wants to admit that, but I certainly am not right about everything, right? There's, right? So, so, but it was really hard to say that to yourself because of the, the I think the emotionality of these conversations. Now, I say that and I, I don't attest to the fact that I could have done all these things well myself. There the conversations were charged um, and there was right from wrong. I mean, just truthfully, that's, that's what it was. And I think part of it is that, that when facts became not what they were, but imagined, right? Um, or came from sources that were not necessarily verifiable. I think that threw the biggest wrench in, in everything that I, that I teach because it's harder to argue against things that are not true. And so like debates are usually like, I'll bring my set of facts, you bring your set of facts, I've done my research, you do your research, and then we're debating that, right? And maybe could come to a place where we agree to disagree, but then we've done that based on reality. That changed everything. So now let's go back to what you do. So I think that, that there are definitely conversations that I had where I walked away and I certainly better understood why people had made, let's say, their voting decisions, right? And the reason why that happened was because it came from a place of education and not the espousing of all the values of their political party necessarily, right? So I could understand. Um, and then there were times where there were conversations that I'm like, I can't, like my values don't allow me to understand. Mm -hmm. Before I go to that place, I'm just going to cut this off, right? Because, because there is no place for me to feel like I'm getting better educated. But I want to hear it because obviously, based on our last elections, um, this isn't like a tiny group of people who happen to just disagree with you and we want to ignore. Ignoring, no matter whether you want to have the conversation or not, I don't think we have the, the option of ignoring people. I think we have to hear people and, and then come to the conclusion that you hear, you understand, and if 
if you can't change minds, then you can't change minds, but you've understood. Again, the element of this that is different from maybe anything else that I've done um, is that even the understanding is really difficult. Um, but for people watching, understanding doesn't mean agreement. Understanding just means clarity. Um, and, and when you can't follow the, the facts, even understanding becomes challenging. So I feel like boundaries matter. I feel like you have to decide how much of your energy to give to these conversations. But I still maintain that they can't be ignored because it's a very big part of our country um, and our politics. Um, we just have to be better at the way we do it. And, and the commitment to change, to changing somebody's perspective is, is not necessarily the right one. The, the commitment to understanding um, and then seeing whether there's a way where you can meet in a place of agreement, then that's one thing. But then when you can't, I just say sometimes it, it's just not really worth having and, and you have to decide when that is. That's like a bad deal that you wouldn't take that you would walk away from, whether it's a car or a house or what have you. You have to know your non-negotiables and you have to know your bottom line. I love that commit to understanding not to changing them because i think we we is that human nature or i don't know what that is but like we go into conversations most times i feel like if we're not being mindful about it like i need you to know that i'm right <laughs> and i i will not back down until you acknowledge that i'm right in exactly the way that i want to hear it and i feel like that's what we do i'll just hear what you just said because i think that's the part um it's that you have to hear it the way I want you to hear it, right? And well, you know, that's not exactly the most influential and persuasive way to teach people, right? So, you know, teaching by force, um, but, but this goes back to the DNI conversation, actually. Um, I always say it's not really what you say that's important, it's how people hear it that's important. And um, to understand your audience, is really powerful because it's not really about you. I mean, you know what you want to communicate, but doing so has to be informed by the way people see you and hear you so that you can change your messaging and still try to get to the place you want to get, but do it in a way that, that actually resonates with people. Um, that's empathy, right? The, to better understand where they've come from, to better understand their life experiences, to better understand um, how you can actually connect this message to them is powerful. You can't force somebody to think like you, right? So there's a lot of work to be done and it's really is involves getting outside of yourself. And that's what I mean by seeing people and really being focused. Um, and not judging what you think their philosophy and their experiences are, but really hearing them because then you can actually maybe create a better way of communicating with them. Um, and everybody's different, everybody hears differently. So that's really the key is, no, you can't, for I mean, I guess you could force somebody, but that's not exactly how you create change, sustainable change, but you really are committed to being curious um, and empathetic. I love that. It makes it makes so much sense, and it's so very different from the. It's like allowing a more. A more feminine energy to a space that's very generally toxic masculine energy, 
Um, and so I'm, I'm curious because you're, you're sort of nodding and smiling. I'm curious to get your reaction to that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that um, it's funny because a lot of gender negotiation conversations are, oh, you know, um, women don't negotiate as effectively as men or what have you. There's always sort of a deficit, a conversation about a deficit or or how we have to show up or how different we have to be and what we have to do and, you know, don't smile too much, don't frown too much, you know, all that. Um, and if you really look at the things that, the characteristics that make up a successful negotiations is actually the, the qualities with which women lead oftentimes, right? So again, collaborative problem solving, um, having emotional intelligence, valuing relationships, leaning into sort of ethics and, and, and the importance of that in a conversation. Um, and so isn't that interesting because we you know all this sort of conversation about being their face, you know, make sure they hear what you're saying, be aggressive. And like, I can't remember the last time I was like, you know what? I love negotiating with that person because they were so aggressive and in my face. No, right. right? You, you think I really enjoyed the conversation with that person. We didn't agree necessarily at the end of the day, but you know, we learned a lot and, and, you know, maybe not on this deal, but maybe the next one, it was, it was a really great conversation. And those come from, again, being heard, the emotional intelligence, the problem solving, that all that. So much more of sort of what we espouse as being feminine qualities, but um, it's, it's absolutely uh, fascinating to see. And I think that, that if we really open our eyes to that, we will change the way we think about the, 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 positive behavior that you want to uh, sort of commit to in the negotiations. And um, at the end of the day, it's really a conversation about winning that I think takes us completely off course. Because the minute you say win, then there's somebody losing and it becomes a win-lose, um, almost combative type of relationship or conversation. And, you know, I think in some ways we as a society have to um, reevaluate, reimagine what winning means. I don't use the term in my class at all, but, but what does that mean? Does it mean at all costs? Does it mean you crush competition? Does it mean, I would think not. Um, and so there's, a, I think I'm hoping, I'm hoping that the conversation is different and, and we sort of reimagine all of these things. We reimagine, reimagine, um, negotiations as a whole, but, but conversations about what, what positive outcomes really mean, what, what winning really means. Oh, well, that's an amazing place to stop. I have so many thoughts, but I don't need to share them because I want to, <laughs> you've said it all so well. Um, that it's, it's so inspiring though, to, to hear your take on it. And for anyone listening, masculine feminine isn't male, female or any, any gender or, or conforming or non-conforming. It's aspects of all of us. Um, so you can have masculinity and femininity and be a, any gender um, or, or um, non-binary uh, expression of gender. Uh, so so um, I think it's important to realize that. Um, and I, 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 I use that term and a lot of people don't know that or, or, or understand that. So I'd love to hear, um, can you please share like how people can find you? If you have a copy of your book nearby, can you hold it up and say the title again? And we'll of course have the links to it in the um, show notes. 
how to harness the power connection to negotiate fearlessly. Um, it is available anywhere that you buy books. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that. Um, and some independent retailers. And um, people can find me on just about every social media site. Well, uh, Twitter, um, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, my website, just my name, so moritaharyport.com. Um, and uh, I, I should be um, in the near future sort of having um, a newsletter and different opportunities for engagement and learning um, sort of launched on my website. Um, we're doing a lot of that now, planning for it now. That's uh, it's, a, it's very exciting. It's, it's uh, the power of one has been exhausting over the past year, but so many, you know, I've built sort of people around me who believe in the message and are really committed to um, engaging in this way of thinking about negotiations. So I have great people around me who are supporting it and students who love the message. And, and um, so it's exciting. I'm excited for, for sort of this next chapter, for That's sure. Incredible. Well, Maury, thank you so much for joining uh, and sharing your, your expertise and experience and brilliance and light with us today. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Enjoy the conversation. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.